Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Climate change and its impacts are becoming a regular part of conversations among scientists and even the general public at large, but are we giving it the true attention it deserves? Should the media be doing a complete overall of how they tackle this issue? Today we're talking with Dr. Genevieve Gunther, founder of End Climate Silence, who is working to change how we talk about extreme weather and its connections to climate change in both the media and in our daily lives. With the majority of Americans now wanting to learn more about climate change, there's never been a more opportune time to educate and call people to action. Dr. Gunther, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Shepard. It is a real delight to be here. Well, it's, it's really awesome to talk to you, and I, I really look forward to this conversation today. I, I, I want to give folks, the listeners of Weather Geeks, a, a bit of your background before we launch in, but be thinking about this big question. How'd you get into the climate world? That's always the question I like to start with. Are you a climate geek, weather geek? I, I like to get into that question, but while you're thinking about that answer, um, Dr. Gunther is the founder of In Climate Silence, which he founded in 2018. She has a PhD in English Renaissance literature from Cal Berkeley in the Townsend, as a Townsend Center for the Humanities Fellow and a Mellon Foundation Fellow as well. So she knows her stuff. Uh, she graduated summa cum laude with her bachelor's in English literature from Columbia. She knows her stuff. And she currently <laughs> serves as an affiliate faculty at the New School, where she sits on the advisory board of the Tishman Environment and Design Center. She was a 2020 nominee for the Eco America American Climate Leadership Award. So, I mean, I think that 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 uh, bio, brief bio, tells you a bit about the person we're talking with today. And it's really this is why I love hosting Weather Geeks because we get to talk to people like Genevieve, such amazing people. So, how did you get into this world of climate, especially given that you were your PhD is in English Renaissance literature? <laughs> I know it's weird, isn't it? I really am coming at this problem from a very different space. Um, I have a background in the humanities, but English Renaissance literature was really concerned with the question of how language makes people believe things, makes them imagine things, makes them feel things. This was what they considered literary theory in the Renaissance. So I have a deep background in the relationship between what we say and our politics. So I actually really wasn't that concerned about climate change until um, the early aughts when I had a child. And during my maternity leave, I started reading the paper sort of all the way down into the science section, which I really hadn't had a lot of time to do before. And the articles that I read about climate breakdown really struck me, you know, because my son was born at the beginning of the 21st century. And so if he's lucky to live a long life, his life is going to play out over the next decades, you know, practically right up to 2100, which of course is the deadline, or at least the sort of boundary point that the IPCC and climate scientists use to discuss the effects of climate change. So 
you know, when I read about droughts that would lower our crop yields or the evaporation of the Himalayan glaciers that would, you know, cause water shortages for billions of people in the global south, in, in, in India and China, or heat waves and, you know, the health effects of heat waves, all of these things that I was reading about started to make, started to feel really personal to me. And I started to become super concerned about the world that I would leave to my little baby after I died. Um, and then, so that was one thing, sort of I got concerned about it just because I was now a mom. And it wasn't just about sort of my life and my ambition and sort of living out my time on this planet, but it was about the future in a way that it had never been before for me. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was that the messages that I was hearing about climate change seemed to me, at least at the time, very data-driven, you know, very... You're spot on with this. Yes. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. You think so? Thank you. As a, as a scientist, it has driven me crazy. So I'm glad to see that even, you know, you know, I wasn't out there sort of howling in the wilderness about this jargon <laughs> trend line discussion that didn't really touch people's kitchen table or so what issues. Exactly. Their kitchen tables or their hearts. You know, why does this mean anything to me as a mother or to me as uh, a father or to me as a business person or to me as a friend or a leader of my community, like, what does this have to do with my life? You know, and that is really, it's a fair frame, right? So it seemed to me that these principles that these Renaissance poets were um, outlining to make language really visual and really vivid, right? And to give people sort of, um, models that they could follow and, you know, narratives of sort of good and evil that they could invest themselves in, like all these principles about how language best works to motivate people into changing their attitudes and taking action. None of them seem to be operating in the space of climate discourse. And I was like, okay, maybe I have a little something to contribute to this conversation, right? So, um, but I wasn't an expert. I didn't really know anything about it, but I really felt like called to kind of do a lot of research and start working on this problem. So, you know, I started taking courses in climate science through the edX platform, which is an amazing platform. I recommend it to all of your listeners, Dr. Shepard. You can take these really like excellent college level courses and a range of subjects for free online taught by you know, professors at Harvard and MIT and University of British Columbia, just like really top-notch stuff. So I took courses in climate science. I started reading the sociological and the psychological literature, um, the research into climate communication. I did uh, Vice President Al Gore's climate reality training. So I wasn't quite, but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to sort of make my way into this space. But then, um, and that went on for quite a long time, I have to say. But then in 2017, the New York Times hired a columnist named Brett Stevens, who at that point was on the record as saying that climate science was a kind of religion presided over by, I think he said, quote, singularly unattractive people, which I thought was really, a really rude thing to say. 
I, I remember that very well. Do you remember that phase? It was really shocking to me. Like there was this real moral outrage that that hiring generated in me that, that the paper of record in the United States could think that outright climate denial was still legitimate political commentary in 2017. So I just became totally outraged. And I actually, you know, threw caution to the wind and tried to, (laughs) I wrote a petition (laughs) to try to get them to rescind their job offer to Brett Stevens. Oh, wow. But but I guess the key message in that is it really sparked a passion in you or sparked an outrage in you uh, that was already sort of kindled or by this sort of overarching concern that you had becoming a new mother. And, you know, I re- I resonate with that because as a climate scientist, I'm, you know, I deal with my share of contrarian or denialist thoughts and arguments. And, you know, I look at people straight in the face and say, look, you know, I have two children. You know, if I'm right, they lose. So I hope I am wrong and you are right, but I don't think I'm not <laughs> following the data. And so there is no vested interest in me winning this argument. I want to lose it because if I win it, my kids are going to be uh, the one that suffer from this. And so I really exactly. resonate with what you're saying with that. So you started, I guess, in the climate science. Was that sort of the culmination of your outrage after writing the, the letter? Well, what happened was like in the process of promoting this petition, because it was just before the March for Science in Washington and the climate march, which was a week later. And I live in New York City. So I took the train down to Washington with like a stack of Xeroxed flyers about my petition and was like single-handedly handing out flyers about my petition at these two marches. And, you know, got enough signatures that the um, campaigner at change.org, the platform on which I did this petition, um, reached out to me and suggested that I like get on Twitter. And I had not used Twitter at all. I was a Shakespeare scholar. I was a Luddite. What did I know about like social media platforms? I knew nothing. But, um, you know, I was persuaded to, to use my Twitter account, which I had opened and never used, in order to promote this petition. And in the process of doing that, I became connected to various climate scientists who were also sort of raising objections about Brett Stevens hiring. Um, And, um, you know, I started becoming connected to climate journalists and just to the sort of current media sphere in general, because of course, Twitter is a wonderful place for journalists to connect. It's really where media and politics and science and all these other public domains meet and, you know, hash things out in a kind of digital public sphere. So, you know, I was working on a book about the language of climate politics, basically right away after Brett Stevens wrote his first column, because it made me realize something about the way climate denial weaponizes scientific language. And I'm happy to talk about that later, but I will just go on to say that what inspired me to found End Climate Silence was one day in 2018, I was in the car and I was listening to all of these segments on NPR about stories that were clearly climate stories, about the ongoing drought in the Pacific Northwest, about the floods in Japan that year that you know displaced 3 million people, um, and also about like whether we want to sort of have self-driving cars kind of driving around our cities at all times. Um, But none of these stories even mentioned the words climate change. It was so surreal and disturbing. It was sort of like an out-of-body experience where you are looking at someone 
who is describing an effect that they refuse to even acknowledge. It was really so bizarre. So I went home after this car trip and wrote a Twitter thread about it and it went viral. And it was my first Twitter thread that actually went viral. And it sparked a whole conversation among climate journalists, but also journalists who don't necessarily think of themselves as climate journalists like Chris Hayes at NBC. Um, and in conversation with some of my activist friends, which also I had made through Twitter, I realized that there was this real need for a kind of activism directed at the mainstream media to try to get them to change their understanding of what it means to do climate journalism or to do journalism in the age of the climate crisis in general. Because it's not just about thinking, it's not about thinking of climate change only as a science story or only as an environment story, but understanding that journalists on every beat are already telling climate stories literally almost every day but they're not explicitly connecting the dots between the stories they're telling and this physical phenomenon of climate change, which is exacerbating or producing or um, influencing the stories they're telling in some way. So go. I, I just simply decided that we would have this organization with this extremely limited mission to get journalists to end their climate silence and simply mention climate change in the stories they were already telling about its causes and effects. And that's what we've been working on ever since. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Genevieve Gunther. And you just heard a really compelling story uh, about why she started the organization in climate silence. And, you know, I, I'm i sitting here nodding my head vigorously, more so than perhaps I have in any podcast that I've done, because I, I just appreciate, one, your your sort of initiative to do this, because this is something that sort of aligns with my thinking about so much of climate communication. You know, I often will do these Google trend searches where I look at climate change and, you know, you'll see it sort of meandering along and then every now and then it'll spike if there's a big story like we're leaving the Paris Agreement or and it'll go back down and then meander along for months. And, you know, I've, I'm on record as saying that there are numerous climate change related stories that could be told in mainstream media every day mm -hmm. on some topic, whether it's related to political destabilization, health, economy, turbulence on airplanes, agricultural productivity, uh, just so many things, violence, uh, heat, the connections between heat and violence. Just so many different things, and you're right. People haven't connected those dots, and so, I, I, and I think the, the bigger challenge, and uh, you know, the other hat that I wear, in addition to being a climate scientist, I am a meteorologist, and mm -hmm. you know, I, in my role as former president of the American Meteorological Society, I used to talk about this all the time. 
most people don't come across a Dr. Marshall Shepard climate scientist every day in their lives. They get their science information from the media or from social media. And so if they only hear about polar bears or the year 2100, that's what they think climate change is. And so I really appreciate that. So with that set up, what, is, what has the media been fundamentally doing wrong on coverage of climate change, other than not mentioning it and, and connecting those dots? And what, in your, your perspective, should they be doing? Well, I think, I mean, aside from the number one requirement, which is, you know, never again tell a story about the energy market without discussing the need to decarbonize our economy. Never again report on a hurricane without finding out what the science says is climate change role in that hurricane and reporting on that. So that's basic. But I think it's also really important for um, the stories that we tell about climate change to not represent this physical phenomenon as a kind of like disembodied actor itself, but to really you know, frame this more accurately, I think, as an effect of our politics. And so to really sort of make it clear that this is about how humans are choosing to organize ourselves in certain ways because there are certain powerful interests which are blocking the attempts, the movement, the need to decarbonize our economies. So very often what happens, especially in um, you know, stories about climate politics is that there is still kind of a false balance perspective brought to bear on these stories where you have sort of scientists pitted against political deniers, or you have the left you know, pitted against the center. And to me, it's not about sort of different opinions about this physical phenomenon. It really is about the sort of scientific deadline to bring our carbon emissions down to, you know, basically real zero, although you could argue whether you want to say real zero or net zero, but to bring our carbon emissions down and like, what are we doing? What are we doing to further that goal? What are people in power doing to further that goal? And what are people doing to block that goal? And I really wish that, um, that more climate stories were framed in terms of that political antagonism, because to me, that is really the issue here, <laughs> fundamentally. You know, there are, of course, technological issues and scientific issues um, and philosophical issues, and all of those are important too. But really, for me, the fundamental issue, um, which unfortunately does intersect with science, is this political issue. Um, and it's not even about right and left, it's just about who's moving the process forward and who's trying to block it. Do you do you think, and I, and I agree with that, do you think the American public is ready for this level of messaging in their, in their media? I mean, again, you and I are sort of climate attentive, and so we certainly not only are ready to receive it, but understand why we need to receive it, mm -hmm. but w what is your pulse of the, of the society right now towards climate? Well, you know, as you well know, there are different levels of engagement with this issue throughout American culture. You know, Yale's climate communication program has adumbrated six Americas, ranging from alarm, alarm, the alarmed on one extreme to the dismissive on another extreme. So, you know, and there are other ways you can sort of cash out that taxonomy. Um, it seems to me that at this point, the vast majority of Americans, including the majority of Republicans, 
are concerned, at least concerned about the climate crisis and actually do want our governments to do more. And they also, in our internal polling, have found, we have found that they also want the media to talk about climate change more than they have been historically. So there is this sort of like worry and this thirst for more knowledge and this desire for action. On the other hand, our internal polling has also shown that even to this day, really only a minority of Americans understand sort of basic facts about climate change. Only a minority of Americans know why a two degrees Celsius target might even be important or what that means or what it is. So the media, as you said, the media is the institution that teaches Americans most about climate change. And of course, they've really not been doing a very good job. So Americans are simultaneously really worried and kind of like still a little bit ignorant about what the problem is, why it's being caused and what the stakes of it are. So um, I, I think that talking about the problem as a physical phenomenon is something that needs to happen. Like I am a big fan of scientific information. <laughs> I know it's subject to motivated reasoning, especially by educated conservatives, but I still think people need to know the facts. We That is part of any kind of reasoning. It's just like, you can't, you can't be a political actor on an issue unless you know something about it. It's just impossible. So exactly. scientific knowledge is still really important. So that's one thing that um, the American public is absolutely ready for, but I think they are also ready for communication that shows why climate breakdown matters to them personally, right? Americans will do anything for their kids. That's the whole story of America. You want your kids to have a better life than you did, right? That's what our national narrative is kind of about, you know, coming over here on the boat and making a new life so your kids can have a different life than you did. That's that's everything. That's the original origin story, at least for white people, right? So for some people. Right, for white people, right? <laughs> came on the boat Other people the came on a boat for, right. you know, not that reason. But, a, but in, in general, the ideal of America is built on that that principle that you just discussed and the whole notion of the melting pot and new opportunity for sure. So you can tell a climate story about why climate breakdown threatens that future for your kids, right? Why there are powerful people who are, are blocking the solutions to this crisis, right? but also why people should want us to solve this crisis in the here and now to make our lives better right now, right? And that is where social justice comes in. That is where racial justice comes in. That is where, you know, economics that addresses inequality comes in. Like the vast majority of people in this country are really struggling. But if we do climate action right, we can make people's lives better today, next year, the year after that, in a way that will last, but will also enable us to have a livable planet in the future as we move forward. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Genevieve Gunther, who is the founder of End Climate Science. Silence, not science. There are probably some skeptic out there that said, yeah, End Climate Science, but that's not <laughs> yeah. But End Climate Silence. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the organization. What resources are available through your organization to media or to journalists? And just tell us a little bit structurally about what In Climate Silence does and who you are. Well, we are a volunteer organization. I, I am essentially self-funded. Um, I should, my husband, well, I've not said this in public yet, but I'll say it now. My husband was the 400th person to join Google. So we have resources. And before I started this organization, uh, we were huge supporters of other climate organizations like 3to50.org, Uprose, Sunrise Movement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we still support those organizations, but now we're also dedicating our own resources to this. So um, we're tiny. It's myself and two volunteers. <laughs> um, and essentially what we do is we scour the media for stories that should have mentioned climate change, but didn't. And when we uh, identify those stories, we do behind the scenes outreach to the journalists and editors or producers that produce those stories. And if we are ignored, then we take to Twitter and sort of call them out <laughs> for not having done a good enough job. Because <laughs> we're also trying to shift norms, right? We're trying to say the way journalistic norms have proceeded in the past is it is no longer working in the face of the climate crisis. Come on guys, get with the program. Here's the new norm, you know? So that's one really important thing we do. Um, when outreach does work, by contrast, um, we work with people in the media. So for example, at the request of a television producer whose name I won't mention, um, I wrote broadcast news scripts that sort of tried to distill the science down into very simple language. And I know this is an ongoing project for science communication, but because I had a connection with this person, I wrote these for her. I don't know if they ever used them or how they were used, um, but that, and they are now up on our website and some volunteer translated them into Swedish. So they're also up on our website in Swedish. Um, in addition, we have started doing polling, in-house polling, which we have hired, um, a think tank to do with us, but then we also replicated this polling with um, the progressive think tank data for progress and started a trend. I know that Yale University did its own polling um, six weeks later. So, and this polling is where we got the data that actually Americans by a vast majority want more news about climate change. And almost 80% of Americans think it's absolutely important that if there is a scientific link between the climate crisis and an extreme weather event. They want the news media to make that link explicitly. So we had this polling, I've written up op-eds about it. You know, we circulated, we took out ads on LinkedIn and targeted television producers to make sure they saw the op-ed. You know, again, trying to shift the norm because of course, historically people have thought that climate change was a ratings bummer. But actually, no, people want not, to change not. news. Not yeah. at all. It's yeah. Maybe it was 10 years ago, but certainly not anymore. Well, I, I know that from a fact because some of the most successful TV meteorologists in our sort of weather casting side of the house at AMS 
are the leaders in their market, but they talk about climate change. John Morales in Miami, uh, Amber Sullen in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Jim Gandy in Columbia, South Carolina, before he retired. What would be considered conservative markets, but they were the beloved in those markets. There you go. Yeah, meteorologists have been on the front lines of this and are doing a really, really phenomenal job. Now they are. There, 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 were, there was a time where we had a good part of the TV meteorology community, at least, that were... Mm-hmm. A lot of them were skeptical on climate. The, the data from Yale and George Mason folks have suggested that they're coming around. Part of the reason why is there are studies, as you just mentioned, noting that it doesn't hurt their ratings. They shouldn't be scared to talk about it. So, right uh, now, what, what, how you said it was a volunteer organization, it's two people and you're self funded, but do you want more volunteers? If someone wants to volunteer your organization, how can they? Absolutely. We always need people. Like one of my poor volunteers is just doing this like endless. Yes, we want more people. <laughs> how, how did it, that would how did be it, amazing. So you can go to our website, which is, you know, endclimatesilence.org. I mean, it's it's, it's hard, right? I know. <laughs> you know. I wish I had thought about that more before we named ourselves. <laughs> anyway, if you go to our homepage and you scroll all the way down, there's a little contact button. Um, and you can send us an email and say that you want to volunteer and we'll, you know, I'll email you back and we'll chat and it would be amazing. Um, well, and then you can follow us on Twitter if you do hashtag and climate silence. Um, it's not exactly all spelled out, but Twitter will sort of, you know, finish it for you and you can follow us on Twitter. And of course, you so can let me just me make sure I understand there. So you have a hashtag, but do you also have an oh, not hashtag? Or- I'm sorry. A little like um, the at. Thank you. The app. At in climate silence. Is that exactly? Thank okay. You. Yeah. Cause I was gonna say, I know the hashtag will corral you if there's uh, if you're tagging folks with hashtags, but yeah. it's, your, your Twitter is at climate silence. Yes. At in climate silence. Exactly. Thank I want to make sure our listeners got it correctly <laughs> so we can all go follow you. Uh, and because uh, I'm, sh- I'm certain that after, after this podcast, there are going to be people in addition to what you already receive that are going to want to volunteer. So well, uh, we if you're that. out there in Weather Geeks world and you um, really believe in what Dr. Um, Genevieve is doing, Dr. Gunther, um, please make sure to, you know, follow that advice, follow her on Twitter, go to the website and, and reach out. Um, What's next? What's your what's your next big project or future goal for in climate silence? Well, the next thing we're going to do, you know, we focused on the print media for many years, and I think we really did shift some norms there. And now we were focusing on the major primetime network news shows, and we've had less success. So now we're going to focus on local television markets, also because we found in our polling that those are the news sources that Americans trust the most. So we're gonna refocus our attention on local news markets and see what they're doing and see how we can help them tell the climate story better. You know, and I'm at work at a book that I hope will get sold. And uh, that's really it. Yeah, and which reminds me because I know that our good friends over at Climate Central are doing some of that type of work. And I know mm-hmm. Media Matters is monitoring some aspects of this as well. Are, are, are you collaborating with any of these organizations or you're just sort of an additional organization with, with your own specialized niche in this area? No, I work behind the scenes with both of those organizations, but where, you know, Climate Central and Climate Nexus are sort of the good cops in this space, I have to confess that oh, I'm you're sort of the, the bad, bad cop. cop. <laughs> I'm the bad uh, cop in this you're, space. You're the gadfly, I guess. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> I'm willing to be annoying in a way that I think you can be when you don't have to worry about your funding. When you're, when you're, yeah, sure. And these are sort of some interesting sort of insights and just sort of how things get done, you know, with the, you know, carrot and carrot and a stick in, in some regards sometimes. Right. So. No, but you need, you absolutely need both. And then of course, there's also Covering Climate Now, which is a new initiative out of the Columbia Journalism School, um, which is also sort of like coming at this in a different way, sort of like partnering with news organizations and sort of, you know, um, creating sort of focused periods for climate stories to flood the airways. So there's like, you know, there's not just one way to do this work. We're all sort of, you know, in the space together, coming at it from lots of different angles, which I think is really necessary and important. Well, this has really been an amazing discussion and I'm glad we were able to kind of introduce the Weather Geeks listeners because, you know, this is Weather Geeks and we talk about all aspects of the atmosphere, whether it's weather or climate. And so it's important for our listeners to understand sort of all aspects of climate. It's not just climate scientists out there uh, sort of dealing with this challenge. There there are different perspectives and uh, Dr. Gunther's is certainly one of them. I can't leave without doing our Geek of the Week. Uh, it's time for the, uh, it's that time of the podcast where we highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Colleen Dyer. Colleen is the director of operations for an event company and is constantly sharing her love of weather with her coworkers. Her most memorable weather event was Hurricane Sandy and its impacts on her home and life when she was in college. Colleen also loves tornadoes and storm chasing. Be careful, Colleen. Uh, if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out the Weather Geek social media pages on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, this has been amazing. Uh, I am so, so glad we were able to talk with you today and learn a bit more about in climate silence <laughs> and your organization. And if you really want to get engaged, uh, please reach out. Uh, Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us on the webinar. Marshall, thank Podcast. you so much. It's just been a complete joy to talk to you. Thank you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from University of Georgia, and we'll talk to you next time on Weather One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.